Hey everybody, it is Quincy the Q-Dog Moran. How you doing? This is part two of a three-part series called Our Story in Our Words. Hope you enjoy. Love some feedback. Have a great day. Go out there and get things done. The podcast. How good do you want your life to be? Truly about becoming the best version of yourself that's possible. This is Man versus Marriage. The podcast. Looking back and remembering some of the conversations, you were brought up in a very strict religious belief. Mm-hmm. And so your idea at the time was if you cross this line, your trip to hell is coming a lot faster than staying on the straight and narrow and doing doing what's right. It's not that you don't do what's right now. You just have a very different view on the whole going to hell thing. But back then, the people that we were around, I think that was their worry was like, if I tell you, then I've just agreed that, you know, I'm doing something wrong and I'm going to hell or I'm going to have to own it and I'm going to have to repent for it and I'm going to have to do something to make it better because that was their their trigger or whatever. But it just, it cracks me up because we were surrounded by so much hypocrisy and it never clicked until later. And I know why we had all the, advers- the, the adversity that we did because if you and I ever figured out how good we really are together, there's no stopping us. Yeah. And it took us a while to figure it out because the adversity that hit us, dude, that shit came on stacks at a time it wasn't like oh hey you know we've got this little group that doesn't like us so we are going to go through this bump and road it was like okay um now that you're married and you're all excited and and we're living in our bliss you can't have kids i'm sorry what this whole game plan that we had for our life was set up to we're going to get married Mm -hmm. and we're going to have a lot of kids and we're going to have this big, beautiful family in this big country home, and we're gonna we're gonna do this. And yeah, I'm not moving to Alabama. Sorry, dude. I'm, I I need to be here with my family. I I I need to be here. This is my roots. I need to be here. I I'm not leaving. I'm I'm just not leaving. And that was another whole, just the start of yeah. what created a snowball of hell for us in our relationship because we stopped talking. We stopped trusting. You know, we got told we couldn't have kids. That wreaks havoc on everything because your mindset goes from, you know, we were newlyweds. I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. When you're newlywed, sex is the thing. It, I mean, you got a free pass, dude, for as much as you want, except for that one week during the month. And we didn't hold back on that. But then when somebody tells you you can't get pregnant, it was like we started studying. How do we do this? What do we need to do? And sex just became mechanical at that point because we had an end game we were trying to get to. Yeah, we were trying and, to work through disappointment. You're right. And it and, just, I think it took away a lot of the underlying intimacy to it. I don't get me wrong. We still did some things, but it wasn't, I think we were both kind of in the mindset of, are we really doing this because we want to do this? Or are we doing this? Because I was constantly doing pregnancy tests and checking on things because it, it, absolutely fried me to think I couldn't have kids. That was the one thing that I had wanted since I was little bitty was a bunch of kids. Well, before we go into that part, 
just just kind of walking back on the story a little bit more um it was our it was our agreement for us to get married in california and then move to alabama because i had made it very clear that california was not for me that i wanted to go back settle in alabama because the way of life there as far as the pace the scenery those things it that's where i wanted to raise my children that's where I wanted to, you know, start my life. And so, you know, Jeannie agreed. She agreed to that. And I, I wanted to go. I know. I know. I know that now. But there was no way I was going to fit. There was no way I was going to be able to live there. It's not true either. I, I disagree with you there because there would have been no way for me to fit here, but I did. But it's better that we stayed here overall. It worked out much better for us, I but. guess the way I see it, um, I don't mean to cut you off. The, the way I looked at it then, though, was much like everybody else. There was a certain box that we were going to have to fit for where we wanted to live and who we were going to live around. And I just could not get my head wrapped around fitting into that box. That's not me. And if I go there, we're going to crush me. But it wouldn't have in, in this sense, and this is all speculative. Um, I'm just saying would, that's where my head was at the time. Yeah, it wouldn't have because of the company that I kept there, which like a Chris and a Kevin uh, and a Jeff, those those people were not, didn't reside in that box. Yeah, I could definitely see where Chris and I could have been. <laughs> we could have been in trouble if you'd had us around each other too long. Yeah, because you guys' personalities are hilarious in the same way. Um. But with that said, we had some snafus along the way. Matter of fact, because of a religious <laughs> issue at one time, we nearly walked away from each other and didn't get married. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were friends who, friends of mine who gave you a whole lot of trouble that you didn't tell me about. I didn't know. And then we, we got relationship counseling early on from an old pastor of yours. Um, and that was... That was a moment where, you know, it. Uh, had I known any of that stuff was going on, I would have stood up for you and ended up having to stand up for you uh, when it came to us getting married and how those plans rolled out. And looking at our marriage, you know, when we had our wedding ceremony, just looking back now, we put, I think we put other people's wants way ahead of ours well I think okay so looking at that just because I've been doing all this stuff lately to figure out where crap's coming from in my mindset um long story there anyway um back then being 18 19 20 21 we were still figuring out who the hell we were yeah you know we had been raised to be a certain way okay in my house emotions were weakness the first one to cry loses um, we were taught you go for the jugular in every argument. Your, your initiative in an argument is to win. It doesn't matter how you get there or how dirty you have to play. You win. That's what you because saw. Then That's, that was everybody, your take on Yeah, it. because everybody leaves you alone. You know, it's, it's the biggest bully gets left alone, basically. And um, it's not to say that my, my parents were, you know, a-holes or anything. It's just this is what they were raised to do. This is what they did. It was... Um, fight or flight basically in my house all the time my sister and I are the same way we're five years apart we couldn't stand each other until she got married and moved out and then we were great but when we were together we couldn't be in the same room together 
I was the enemy because I was the baby and I was spoiled. And it was just, I was just quiet. I talk all the time, but I watched and learned. I was always the introvert. I played by myself. I didn't play with other kids. I didn't, I had friends, but I didn't play with friends. I stayed home and did my own thing. To this day, I am still that person. But we were taught, you know, the church I was growing up in at the time was very free in expressing themselves and how they prayed. And, you know, if you felt like somebody needed you to put your hand on their shoulder and pray with them, nobody cared. You just walked over and did your thing. And it wasn't like an invasion of space. It was if you were me, but that's just me. I don't like to be touched. But mm-hmm. um, people knew that about me, though. They knew to ask me or they just they knew who I was. Going into your church, being surrounded by a bunch of teenagers and, you know, the rules were different. There was a lot of different rules there. And the one that I think started the snowball effect was um, there was a group of brothers. I love their mom. Little little old lady, and she did not care. If she wanted to pray, she would pray. And if she felt like she needed to tell you something, she would tell you something. And she would tell you with this thick accent and broken English mm. and just so freaking sweet. But at the same time, she had that mom tone. Is that the B bros? Uh-huh. Yeah. So when you get that, but the way she would tell you, she would get that, that, like, if it was a correction, it was a motherly tone. And you just knew that, like, you're getting reprimanded right now by your mom. Yeah. But if it was something that was meant to be said in love or if it was something that was just, she was just a very genuine person. I gravitated to that. I gravitated to real. But I thought, because this is how I used to do it, I went up with her. She went up to pray with somebody. I went up with her. She was so excited that I went up there. Like she praised me for days because I did something that was out of the norm. Now I got reprimanded for that later. Because I wasn't supposed to do that. I didn't have permission to do that. I wasn't an elder or a leader. She was. That floored me. And, and that began my my immediate um, change in mindset being around those people. It's like, whoa, hold up. I don't do rules like that. I, I don't think that that's... I wasn't trained that way. I wasn't taught that there were rules in yeah. authority. I still don't believe that there's rules in authority. I, my own personal belief, we don't usually talk religion, but my own personal belief, if God tells you, you do it, period. End of discussion. I don't need somebody else to tell me how to do it. Um, but back then, being a teenager and, and going into my beginning of my 20s and you and I were trying to find our way and we were trying to figure things out, you came from an even stricter line of belief system because... God, I couldn't even walk into your church the way I used to dress and act if I wasn't careful. Just not that that's how they were. That's how I was thinking it because of what had happened in your past with other relationships. Yeah. I was like, dude, I've got tattoos that, I mean, I didn't have a lot back then. Now I'm very, very different and I don't care near as much, but I always worried about how I reflected on you. I still have that concern, but not near as much because the tattoos, the hair color, the piercings and stuff, you like those things about me because they're me. Other people, it's offensive. I don't care. As long as you love me, I don't care. But being around the groups that we were in, it just, we were trying to make everybody happy. Yeah. 
and trying to make us happy because like your parents and my parents are very different. You know, your, your dad's upbringing and his, um, religious belief is very, very different. My mom and dad, one is Catholic, one is Christian. Okay. They converted to Christianity, but my dad is still very rooted in his upbringing as a Catholic. He went to a Catholic school. You don't erase that from your memory. Mm-hmm. So there was always that imbalance in my house. And it was real easy, I think, for me to be myself learning about that stuff because I had two different sets of rules and neither one of them coincided with the other. You had your dad's version and then living here with your mom, like living with your dad, you were very free. You got to go do your own thing. You could drive, go do your own thing. Living with your mom, it was a little stricter. Mm-hmm. And I I see that more now, I think, in our own kids because, like, yeah, but we're in California. This isn't Alabama where you can just ride on a dirt road and you're cool. This is California. Rules are way different here. Um, You know, young girls disappear here pretty quickly across the border. So it's one of those, for me, it's a real sketchy fine line. But you grew up with very different rules than I did. I was very restricted. Mm -hmm. I wasn't allowed to just go out with anybody. I couldn't just get in my car and drive off. Hell, I owned my car and my dad threatened to take my keys because I came in after curfew one night. I bought that thing. I paid for it. You can't take my car. But he did. He took my keys. I had a spare, but he took my keys. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like everything was so different. And when we came together, we were trying so hard to figure out our own balance. And at the same time, how do we make sure that our parents are still proud of what we're doing? How do we make sure that our friends still stay our friends like we didn't know it's okay to kick some of these people to the curb if they don't fit what we're doing then their season's over we didn't know that because yeah. we were young you know i think a lot of times i wish i wish somebody would have sat us down and been like rita was in the beginning look dude if it doesn't fit what you guys believe ditch it if it makes either one of you uncomfortable or feel unsafe address it or ditch it right the, you know we didn't know that stuff we thought we'd make everybody happy hell every time we got pregnant i was like grabbing for something to hold on to because once we had hunter everybody was ecstatic because we got pregnant and we had baby boy and then when hunter was born there was some shock and awe because of the ear thing um but it wasn't like so terrible you know what I mean? To everybody else, it was just like, oh, it's okay. We'll, we'll figure it out. He could still hear. We'll figure it out. And everybody's really supportive with us. When we got pregnant with the triplets, everybody went into panic mode, including us. <laughs> well, I, that, and that's, you know, what you're, what you're describing there is just a couple of people who just didn't know where they fit. I mean, we, I think we were pretty set in our ways and comfortable in our own circumstances, but then things just began to change and all the adversity leading up to us getting married and and me bringing up the point that we cared too much about what other people wanted or did too much for others um, in setting up our wedding ceremony. um, I think right now it'd be a lot different, probably a whole lot smaller. Oh, And, you know, it would be, it, uh, we were just in the place of trying to please everybody. You are absolutely correct. And but in doing that, we lost ourselves. I think that's where yeah. a lot of our problems started because going back over all of the um, the accommodations that we did, even in the wedding, 
Mm-hmm. You know, we still did what we wanted to do, but we did we did compromise some things going forward because I just couldn't handle dealing with it anymore. I don't care. Just, just, I don't care. Just get us up there. Let's say I do and we're done. I don't, I don't care anymore. Yeah. And you never want to be in that position when it's supposed to be your day. Right. You know, this was supposed to be about us, you know, moving forward. We are the way our life together went. It was like, we started with adversity because some people didn't want us dating. Mm Mm-hmm. Some people really didn't like me and they didn't go to you. They went to me, which should have been looking back on it and knowing what I know now, dude, I should have just dropped the shady shit in a heartbeat. I should have said what I needed to say and not cared if it got back to you. But I was concerned because the, the person I am now is more true to who my myself is. But had I been this when you and I were first starting out, I don't think we would have stayed. I don't think we would have made it because at the time, the person you were was so set in the rules and the definitions that you knew. I mean, just trying to get over the pants and the dress thing was hard enough. I don't think that how I would have come down on that particular group would have gone over very well. But that put aside, going forward, it was like then we couldn't get pregnant and then we got pregnant and we had Hunter and then we got pregnant with the triplets. Our life just started going so freaking fast. We couldn't figure out who we were and we couldn't catch up. Yeah. Everything just kind of went from, you know, a little locomotive into a freaking bullet train. And you and I are holding on for dear life trying to figure out, oh, God, how do we navigate this damn thing? Who's got the brakes? Yeah. And it's funny you say that because um, just about you don't if the you now wouldn't have made it with the with the me then. um it's interesting because there there may be there may be some truth to that, but you know I had something written down here and it's like what was what was your biggest draw to me when we you know finally got down to it? Oh, to me? Yeah, I want to ask you just like an impromptu question. What was your what was your biggest draw to me? Um, if you can come up with it, you know, in the moment. Oh, that's easy. I was priority. You always cared about what I thought about something. You never just made a plan and let me deal with it. And if we ever went somewhere and we were in a group of people, you made sure that I knew I was a priority. I was used to being in places, you know, we'll use baseball player as an example. I wasn't the priority. He was the priority. These are his friends. This is his reputation. This is his place. I was just the arm candy. When I was with you, I was never just the arm candy. I was always included in everything. And anytime anybody tried to make plans or ask you about something, you always reverted to, well, let me ask Jeannie. That put me in in a position where I knew I was important. We had a lot of similar... um, life goals. You didn't laugh at me for how much I wanted to go to church. You didn't laugh at me for, you know, the things that I was dreaming about doing. I was singing at the time and that's where I wanted to go. And you were all in. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have that. That was something that was always lacking in my life. And you, you just readily gave it to me and didn't even care. You made me laugh like nobody makes me laugh. And you still have that ability to just 
oh my God, the Kings game and the guitar is probably going to be one of my most favorite memories for the rest of my life. Whenever I, I kid you not, whenever I'm having a crap day, I pull it up on my phone because that's one of those moments where you have no problem setting your pride aside and doing whatever it takes to make sure that I can have a good moment. Um, and then it was just, you didn't judge me. There were things that I knew didn't fit what you had been taught. Yeah. But you still didn't judge me on that. Until we got to the conversation of the pants and the dress, and even then you didn't judge me. You were just trying to figure out, how do I make this work? What because it doesn't, do? it doesn't work with what I know, but what our gut said didn't match what we knew. Mm-hmm. So we had to figure out, how do we make this work? And through the years, I think that's really what's gotten us through everything is, okay, this isn't what we know to be supposedly true. This is what we've been taught. But now we're at a place where we go back to, okay, but who taught me? Mm -hmm. What was the premise of the teaching? And does it still ring true with who I am? And then you and I kind of, you know, eat the meat, spit out the bones. A lot of that stuff that we were brought up with, a lot of the stuff that we saw now looking back and going through it without knowing we were doing it, we were really weighing it against, but what is it in here? Mm -hmm. Is it, is it really, am I willing to give up this person that I know that I know that I know Mm -hmm. is mine because I was taught this, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But yeah, for me it was, it was, those were the four, and then you were really, really good with kids. And that was a huge bonus for me because I wanted a big family. But I didn't want somebody who was just going to get me pregnant and go off to work and I was going to be the parent and they weren't going to be a parent. Well, I might have done some of that, but... Not intentionally, um, but and, and that's what past it. That is what's interesting to me. I, I, I just wrote down a couple of things that you said to me and um, right there in those moments... You said there were four. I got three and then added on the the good with kids. Um, You said I made you a priority and I included you. And then I just wrote down joy and I should probably put laugh. And like you said, I would do anything. Well, you know how I was telling you in that thing I was doing lately that the one thing I've always hated is being emotional. But in getting down to the nitty gritty of things, the one thing that I crave the most, the thing that draws me the most is that emotional connection. Yeah. That's what it was. That's all it was. I mean, if you if you think about it, making me a priority and making me laugh and, you know, you count me for me, that's that's an emotional anchor. It all is. I didn't have that. It's what I've always craved. Yeah. So finding it, it was pretty freaking cool. I just didn't know at the time that that's what I was finding. Yeah, I and that feeling of no judgment is what I've done. Not to say that you're nobody special because you're my most favorite person. I think maybe you're just the only person who gets it. Yeah. Because I've offered, I've offered that even to those teenagers in youth group and family and, you know. I may have not liked what they were doing, but I didn't want to make a judgment so that we couldn't have the truth between us. But their expectation was what they knew of your 
um, not so much your teaching, but what you were taught. And you have to remember, just, just looking back at it now, there was one particular voice that always talked you up and had this, he won't do this, he won't do that, because that was their perception of who you were and where you came from. Because that same person came to me and he won't commit. There's no way you're going to get a commitment out of him. He's already said he won't commit. You know, I'm not your type. I don't fit your belief structure. Was that an ex-girlfriend of mine? Mm-hmm. And, oh, it, okay. and it was the easiest, easiest response for me when I got my ring. Oh, I wish it was on a different finger. Because that was my thought process was, you know what? He won't commit to you because you're not his. I am. Mm-hmm. We knew that. I think it's the same with other people. They perceive something about you and it's like, yeah, but if you don't open yourself to receive that, like you, they expect something from you, but they don't know how to receive it. And when they do get it, it's like, no, that's not supposed to happen. It's They don't know what to do with it because a lot of people in this world are not genuine. They don't give you the real. They give you what they think you want. Yeah. And even if it's what I think I want, it's not what I need. And some part of me recognizes that. You're giving me what I want to hear, but you're not giving me what I actually need. So the the real part of me rejects it because it's not what I need. You're not you're not doing your part. You're not appreciating me because you're not meeting what I need. Mm-hmm. Even though you're saying everything I need you to say or I want you to say, it's not connecting with what I actually need. And I think a lot of people live in that space and don't realize that if they would shut up for a second and listen to what you're actually saying, it is what they need. They don't want to accept it because it's not coming the way they think it should be coming. Hmm. I've learned after years of crashing and burning, I have learned it may not be how I want it to be but you have never approached me without first putting my need as a priority it's not about how I need to hear it it's about getting it across a lot of people don't live that way they don't understand that about you they really don't a lot of people think that you're blowing fluff because you're a nice guy and you try very hard to not hurt people in what you say and how you say it I give you the freedom to say it ugly If you're going to hurt me, you're going to hurt me, and we're going to work past that. Other people don't give you that. Yeah. I don't give that to everybody. There are a lot of people in my life, if they gave it to me straight, I wouldn't accept it from them. Yeah. Just because of what I'm looking at, trying to preach into me, hell no. There's no way. But you have that open reign with me. It's it, that that's the difference, I think, in where we started and where we're at. Is we've we've always kept it where we knew somewhere in here we knew you're not doing this maliciously. We're not doing this with the intent to hurt each other. Yeah, it's just life coming at rapid pace, you know. Yeah, and that and it took a long time to build because, you know, I would say I would say to you over and over again that you know. We're home team. Mm -hmm. We're home team. I'm not against you. We're home team. And that, I think uh, you make a lot of sense to me there because my 
my goal is just to meet people where they are, not to shame them for where they are, but to give them, to give them the truth and what's going to help them get off the ground and not just walk away, but give it to them and then help them off the ground. But if a person is expecting because of their own guilt or their own discomfort or their, their own lack of understanding, if they're expecting judgment, that's how they're seeing it. It's filtered through that, no matter how you say it. Yeah. Yeah, and I understand that. And, you know, listening to some of our old episodes and preparing for this show, I, the what drew me to you the most, you know, guys are visual, so you're... <laughs> Dude, come on. You got to cut that crap out. You can't be coughing in the microphone. You're killing me, Smalls. Oh, I can't laugh yet. I'm sorry. Um, what, uh, what drew me to you? Obviously, you know, your beauty was meeting you and seeing you was like, Oops. oh, my Lord. Um, those are nice. Very uh-huh. nice. You're smiling. I remember I was young. But um, Everything was in its place back then. <laughs> <laughs> it was much more than that. And it was you and you being a rebel, and you being free, and you, the way that you talked to God, and you carried yourself, that freedom, that rebel in you is what drew me. I had to know more. I had to learn more about that. I had to be a part of your life, because I wanted to see how you could teach me how to become that person because I was so judgmental and structured of myself. I didn't put the judgment on other people. I had it all for me. Mm-hmm. And I admire you so, so much. And I admired you so much for that because you were a person who lived in freedom. And I would cringe. I would cringe at the way that you would say that you would have a conversation with God because... <laughs> You know, I wouldn't, it's like, he wouldn't do that. But the more I watched you and I learned about you, the more that you wanted to be a person, you wanted to be a free spirit, you wanted to be like a rebel with a cause. And that rebel was, I want to be myself. That was so attractive to me. You know, and then you couple the things that we have in common and that our goals were to, you know, have a wonderful relationship and have a family and grow. Um, That part of you that's a rebel is what drew me to you the most. And I wanted that. I, I desire, I had to have that in my life and that's what attracted you to me the most. It's the most authentic part of you. And I just had to have it. And it's like, I got I have got to have this woman in my life. I have to, she has to be in my life because I love and admire this so much. And I've never ever ever wanted to change that. I never wanted to stand in the way of that. All I've ever wanted to do was feed that so that you could you can just continue to grow and then accomplish whatever it is that you want with me being the biggest cheerleader behind you because I'm 100% for you. And there's nobody on the earth I love more than you, period. I'm the favorite. Indeed. So 
then we get into the story of us having kids, and once again, you blew the lead. We were both told in not so many terms. No, we were both told at separate times we couldn't have kids. First, it was you that you couldn't get pregnant. And then we weren't certain if it was you, even though we got those reports from the doctor. So we had me tested. And I was at home in our little apartment for the call. You took the call. Hospital told you, you know, I was firing off blanks. And I couldn't have kids. And I think much like you were explaining how you felt about that, then I felt that way. Mm -hmm. Because I felt like I was broken or um, I was a failure. Which if you, um, if you're dealing with infertility, you're not broken or a failure. It just is where you are in life. And there are so many children that need love and affection and help. And that's just, that's where it is. Now, fortunately for us, you know, I'm speaking from somebody who they called back 30 minutes later and said, oh, sorry, we read the wrong test. You actually can have children. So that was, you know, a very grim 30 minutes of my life to think that the one thing I wanted, I couldn't actually give Mm -hmm. to you. And then I didn't even know if you were going to want me after that, because what good was I if I couldn't give you children? If I couldn't do that, I was that really in that 30 minutes was like, now what? Now, now what? Mm -hmm. You know? And that's a very hard and scary place to be. And if you if you listening to this are in that place, my heart goes out to you because that is that is such a hard place to be. Yeah. Um. And then we did have kids. And the funny thing is, I mean, we have. I'm sure everybody does, but in since it's our life, maybe we're just more attuned to the details. But we ended up. Our first child was born. The same day, the same year, the same hospital as my sister's last child. An hour apart. And my son, <coughs> I got to get you a cough button. Um, my son was born an hour before my niece. And he, w- he came early, but he wasn't, he wasn't quote unquote perfect. There was he something. He had a football cone head. He did, but there was more than that. It, you know, his, his there was something that happened with his ear and would lead us on this these other paths that are just so interesting of how these paths come about and how we affect other people's lives as a decision, as choices that we decided to make. And you know that there was something that happened to me at that moment. Um, some resentment built up you know, towards God as a man of faith that my child was born and they're not perfect. Mm -hmm. And I hid that and harbored it for a long time because I was offended at me for being offended at God. And I get that way. Even when I'm mad at you, I get mad at myself for being mad at you about something. It's a weird thing in me that I don't really understand because I don't, I don't, I take no pleasure in being upset with people. Even in my experience today, I just don't like being upset with people. Um, So, we go from people who can't have kids. We have a son. Then we have triplet girls. And then we have a daughter. And then we have twin daughters. And then we have one more daughter. So we go from these people who can't have kids <coughs> to these people who now have a basket full of kids. 
And with each of those kids, you know, the majority of our pregnancies, there were complications. Mm-hmm. And when the I triplets, was high risk from the get-go. When the triplets were born, Jeannie spent six weeks straight in the hospital, no windows, no travel, just in a hospital room. I couldn't even go to the bathroom by myself. I had to stay in my bed. It was stupid. It was stupid. Um, and then when the triplets were born, they went directly into intensive care. And that's how things started with them. Not just any intensive care. We ended up with, by the fifth week after they were born, we were split between two hospitals. Yeah. Because um, we had to be, Hannah had to be in UCLA for surgery. So I was traveling back and forth to make sure that we had breast milk between all three kids. Yeah. And then supplementing formula when I wasn't there while you were working a job and trying to take care of Hunter. And here I was trucking along in our little minivan all over creation trying to make sure that I was pumping my boobs enough to keep them all filled. That's all that mattered. Pump, sleep, pump, sleep, pump, sleep. That was it. That was my life for yeah, it was a, it <laughs> for was a, a really long life. time. And that's just before, you know, and then, and then the kids came home. And then we had an instant houseful with oh. Hunter and the triplets. And the feeding, the you know, what felt like every 30 minutes we were feeding and changing diapers. Every it hour was, and a half. It was like a blur. It was a blur in time. And, you know, it it's adversity that parents with triplets have. So it's not like anything uncommon. But the other side of that with, you know, the brain surgery, the brain swelling and all all that, it was pretty traumatic. And, and then we got, you know, um, pregnant again with... Um, you the know, triplets were seven months old, and we found out we were pregnant with Ashlyn. Yeah, you called me. I remember I had driven down with Tomas, and I was in Valencia um, at a shopping center where we were delivering a, a dump truck, and uh, you gave me a call, and you were crying and told me. I couldn't figure out why you were crying. I did not um, know how you were going to react because it wasn't intentional. I mean, it's not like we planned it, and it wasn't. it wasn't a bad thing. It was just... I think reality coming in, oh my God, they're only seven months old. Well, we were in a drought for a long time. And like, yeah, but thinking, you you would have to understand the perspective of Hunter came early. The triplets came way early. I just spent a lot of weeks in a hospital locked away Yeah. and lost my sanity for a short period of time. And the nurse will vouch, I lost my sanity a couple of times. Um, and then we were just getting, I mean... They were. It was four months before we actually got everybody home. Yeah. No more hospital visits. No more driving back and forth between L.A. and here. We'd only had three months of normalcy for what was going to be normal for us. And then, oh, my God, I'm pregnant. Yeah. Like, what if this one comes early? What if I don't hold it? And because I had already called the doctor to let them know. I mean, I, I didn't even waste time. I was already on the phone with the doctor going, what the hell do we do? And he's like, make me appointments, got to get me in, because I was a high risk. I was always a high risk. Yeah. But seven months after having three babies in my uterus and all the damage that comes along with being on the meds and, you know, ha- carrying them all that time and how bad it stretched everything out, you and know. And there was controversy. And then there was controversy. Family. Oh, Lord. But, yeah. you know, when you called, you were afraid I was going to be mad. And, I mean, my, my thought process is if you dance in the rain without a, an umbrella, you're going to get wet. So, you know, that's that's the way it was. And like I say, we had been on, because of, you know, the pregnancy, the birth, and all those things, we were in a sex drought. So what's the first thing you do when you 
get a chance to drink water, you drink all you can get. Yeah. And that's what happened for us. <laughs> You know, um, but then there was controversy within the family that you were pregnant again. And, and it supposedly didn't... you're not, supposedly you can't get pregnant when you're nursing. That's a lie. Well, we, <laughs> we checked that box. Um, and so with that, you know, that, that pregnancy was a bit adverse and, and um, we decided, you know, the, the house we were in was too small at the time, you know, so we, that's just with you know, Hunter and the girls, and then, you know, Ashlyn comes along, and it's like, well, we got to get another house, and that was a traumatic experience, which is odd. There was just so much adversity in moving 30 minutes away from town, 35, 40 minutes away from town, living with people that already have a child, like encroaching on their entire life, Um, our house not being ready, and, you know, me getting terrible news about the house and your birthday and sitting on it and not giving you that information until, you know, the next day or so, so that you wouldn't have to go through that. Finally getting into the house. And then after getting into the house, finding out that our children were sexually abused by babysitters, just another life took another swing and it was a, it was a direct hit. We were pregnant with twins. We, we had just moved into the house. We weren't in the house maybe two weeks. Yeah, we were still putting stuff together. Yeah, we hadn't we didn't even have beds yet. We the mattresses were on the floor in the living room, and uh, we got the news about the molestation. And in the same week, we got the news that my dad had cancer. Yeah, and that I mean, our whole world just flopped upside down. Yeah. So in the midst of in the midst of brain surgery, uh, in the midst of those types of issues, you know, pregnant again with twins, which we're excited about. <clears throat> we are, maybe not everybody else. You know, we're living in now a different home, waiting on our home to show up. Then we get into our home, and then, you know, the truth comes out about, you know, the sexual abuse. And so we have to live through that. And then not long after that is when autism comes up. And, you know, we have to make our way through what does that mean, live in some denial about Hunter and autism while the girls are diagnosed with autism, get pregnant again. Get told it's twins. Hunter's diagnosis didn't come until after the last pregnancy. We got we got the first diagnosis. Um, Hannah's was the first. And then we didn't get Hunter's until I was pregnant with Mo because he was in kindergarten. We had finally, we were trying to homeschool him. It didn't work. We put him on campus. I remember because... We had taken um, Kirsten and Hannah down. Hannah was getting a recheck with a new doctor. And um, they were almost five. Hannah had already been diagnosed. We were just trying to get the proper paperwork because we were getting ready to put them into school. Hunter was in school having ear surgeries. I was pregnant with Mo. And um, I remember the doctor checking out Hannah and was like oh yeah she's definitely you know mild to to moderate and um but the one you need to worry about is the one over there on the bench and it was Kiki she was watching the trees in the window they had light up toys they had noises going off they had all kinds of things happening and Kirsten never batted an eye never flinched she just sat there rocking with the trees back and forth and that hit like a freaking ton of bricks yeah. Because Kiki had been developing fine. 
I mean, she was really, I mean, she was finally hitting her milestones. The only one that was really behind in milestones was Hannah. And that was just because she had so many brain surgeries that her brain was having to catch up with everything that was going on. And then, you know, the, the autism diagnosis for her, it hurt, but I think we kind of expected that there was going to be some blowback from all of the surgeries. We had been warned, but everything that they had told us she would never do. Hannah had already done it. Yeah. So we were just kind of like, yeah, okay, this isn't going to be, you know, a major issue with her. The issue with her was the shunt. It wasn't the autism. The autism is, is, um, it plays a part now because there, there are certain maturity things are different, but growing up, she's always been really super smart. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really a major concern for us at the time, but Kirsten went from, meeting all of her milestones to talking clearly to, you know, she didn't like to be touched. She didn't like to be around other people a whole lot, but she just did a complete 360 over a short couple of months. And then to get the diagnosis, we're like, what the hell happened? Yeah. And now she is literally stuck at four years old. Yeah. It's like, um, it's like driving down the highway and you get a flat tire, you know, going 65, 70 miles an hour. And it's like, oh, you, you can kind of keep it on the road. But then you have two major blowouts in the front tire, and it all happens while you're going 70. It was like, you know, we knew this tire right here might blow. We went, decided to take the trip anyway, diagnosis one. But the other diagnosis in the same moment is like two other tires blowing out. Yeah, and then Hunter's, <laughs> Hunter's was an accident when we got his diagnosis too, simply because... um Hunter's hard of hearing. So a lot of the symptoms of autism fall under typical behaviors of someone who's hard of hearing as a child. You know, frustrations, tantrums, um, having stimming behaviors, being overly sensitive to sound and light. Um, The other thing that comes with being hard of hearing is your other senses kind of take over because they need to be stronger. Well, when you had autism to that, which we didn't know, you don't have an auditory processor. You don't have a visual processor. You're kind of just fighting through whatever you can get when both machines are broken. Yeah. We didn't know. He was eight years old before we figured out that he was autistic. And that just, I that took the wind out of everything. I mean, that, yeah. that was like, okay, all four tires are gone. We are full on spinning down the highway and there is nothing stopping this wreck. Yeah, we went into a barrel roll at that point. The podcast. How good do you want your life to be? You gotta live on purpose. For a purpose. It's truly about becoming the best version of yourself that's possible. This is Man vs. Mary, the podcast.